Hello, listeners. I hope you're well. I'm Blake Montgomery, and I'm here today to talk about rural education. EdTech can bring great benefit to schools far outside the ecosystem of a city. Rural schools are often understaffed and underfunded, so digital courses can bring extra faculty in from afar, and inexpensive digital materials can provide much-needed resources to students. That said, bringing technology infrastructure to a school far from a city is no easy task. My guest today knows a lot about how to run a rural school. Daisy Dyer-Dewar, a former principal from Arkansas, who's now working with rural schools across the country on technology initiatives and training for teachers and administrators. She transformed her floundering Title I school without any technology into a top-performing school with cutting-edge devices for its students. She's passionate about her work and fascinating to talk to. And it's not all tech, actually. It's a lot about her team and her professional learning network. You'll see. But first, we have the news. So you want to work in ed tech. Well, the real magic of it isn't the technology. It's about the people who brainstorm and build the tools, and most importantly, the teachers and students who use them. Want to make a difference? Our newest guide explores the different opportunities in the EdTech industry today and how you can make the leap from one place to another. There are tales from the trenches to help you discover your strengths, build your brand, and ace that interview. My favorite part is the trio of infographics on different career pathways, moonlighting opportunities, and where the jobs are in the United States. Since 2010, Khan Academy's mission has been breathtakingly ambitious to provide a free, world-class education for anyone, anywhere. Well now, Khan is taking aim at a narrower but equally provocative goal, get anyone ready to pass the SAT for free. But will this disrupt test prep businesses or standardized testing altogether? EdSurge caught up with Saul Khan and the College Board's David Coleman to get their take. Check it out on edsurge.com. As of 2015, 30 states have enacted guidelines and policy recommendations for broadband connectivity. 28 states had a high-speed statewide broadband network for their districts. With a spotlight on New Jersey and New Mexico, among others, this fresh report from SETDA and Common Sense Kids Action showcases how state leadership can help bring more broadband access to schools and at a lower cost. Some families will benefit too. On March 31st, the FCC passed a measure allowing low-income households in its Lifeline program to purchase discounted broadband. Alaska has canceled federally mandated state testing because of statewide internet connectivity failures. The cause? A construction worker at the University of Kansas who severed a critical fiber optic cable. Quote, the level of chaos was just beyond what is acceptable in terms of a learning environment for students, said Interim Alaska Education Commissioner Susan McCauley. Do schools really care about bringing games into instruction, or is it only a few of them? According to a survey of 800 teachers and 350 administrators by ThinkZone, it's about 50-50. Approximately half of all administrators and teachers believe that games can be used to teach complex and challenging ideas and topics. And a total of 51% of teachers use games in the classroom either daily or weekly. Premium business models only work if a startup has services and tools to upsell. 
After more than five years, Victor Karkar, the CEO of Scribble, believes he's found the right features to charge for. This week, the company is launching productivity and analytics tools to help students organize their research and writing processes. Victor tells EdSurge, if I had to do it again, I would have charged from day one. And now it's time for ka -chings. That's the first time I've ever said that, and I'm very excited about it. Really? Yeah. Oh. San Francisco-based Able Schools has closed a $4.5 million seed round led by Owl Ventures with Reach Capital and First Round Capital chipping in. Short for Always Be Learning, Able Schools is attempting to build a new school operating system that helps administrators understand how to better allocate human resources and teaching staff to meet the needs of students. San Francisco-based Schooled has closed a $4.5 million seed round from Accelerator Fast Forward and private investors such as Lauren Abney. Schooled, a free college and career planning app, pulls data about colleges and presents metrics such as graduation rates and salary projections differentiated by major in the app. Memorang, a San Francisco-based startup, has raised a $500,000 seed round from California-based angel investors. Founded in 2013, the company offers users a platform for creating flashcards, multiple choice, and matching questions. It also offers premium flashcards written by its content team, specializing in health sciences. The problems of urban schools may seem to dominate debates about education, but according to the National Center for Education Statistics, more than half of all American school districts qualify as rural. These districts have their own problems, to be sure. Lack of staff, poor internet connection, long bus rides, and, of course, funding. Enter Daisy Dyer-Dewar, a champion of rural education. She served as the principal of St. Paul's School in Arkansas from 2011 to 2015, bringing the school back from the brink of shutdown and helping it become one of the top performing schools in all of Arkansas. She's a 2014 NASSP Digital Principal Award winner, and now she's striking out on her own to scale some of the ideas that turned her school around. I was lucky enough to talk to her about her time at St. Paul's and her new ventures. So I think we're ready to go. Yeah, if I guess my first question would just be a general one. Jenna mentioned that you've um, that you like turned around your school and that it wasn't doing so hot um, when you were principal and through kind of like implementation of tech and through a lot of other initiatives. Um, and I'd just love to hear that story and then we can move on from there. Absolutely. So just a quick synopsis. I was a teacher and a coach for seven years and I loved the classroom. I absolutely loved it. I loved coaching basketball and I had a lot of success in that as a teacher and a principal or as a teacher and a coach and then I had the opportunity to get into administration. So I love a challenge and having already had that great success there, I moved into administration as an assistant principal and in time, the nat natural progression, I was very successful. I loved that piece of being an assistant principal and I, I was lucky to have principals that gave me a lot of experience and a lot of duties that other people that are assistant principals usually are maybe relegated to just 
doing discipline type things and that wasn't the case for me. So I was able to learn a lot of things under them. So I spent 10 years as an administrator. So I was in the last four until July this past year of 2015, I was a principal at an isolated rural school in Arkansas. I had been a really successful principal at what would you would consider an Arkansas suburban school that was very successful, had great test scores, and was doing really well. So there was really no reason for me to leave that school except that I had the opportunity to have a challenge at this rural isolated school, which happened to be close to where I was born and raised. Hmm. And I, I, the superintendent of the school district happened to be someone that I was very close to as a child. And he called me and said, you know, it looks like this might be a school that we're going to have to shut down. They're on year two school improvement, and that's for math and literacy. We're on our sixth principal in, in the last four years, and we're having so many problems at this school. Would you be interested at all in taking this challenge on? Now, I was coming from being a just secondary principal, and this was going to be a principalship of a pre-K-12 school. So... For some reason, I just kind of had the calling that that was it was time to move on and to do something more because I, I really do think that education is one of those passion things, and it's something that you just have to have that drive and that want to to make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I took the job and just started working really hard, started gathering everyone in the community together and came up with that plan. And it was just amazing that we were able to work through all these different steps, integrate technology. You know, we had to go as far as lobbying our state to get more bandwidth. I had the opportunity, you know, to work with the Alliance and speak to the SDC on the behalf of rural schools to ask for more bandwidth through E-Rate and do all kinds of amazing things to just not for my school, but for other rural schools. And in that process, our students' test scores and our students' admittance, the ones that were going to college, the ones that were going to secondary school just went through the roof. The ones that were, you know, actually trying to move forward, it was just crazy the amount of improvement. So we went from being one of the very bottom schools in the state to being one of the top 10% in less than four years' time. Wow. So it was just such an exciting ride, per se. And we built, I was the only administrator within 50 miles. So I was in charge of the cafeteria. I was in charge of all the buses and the maintenance, everything. So it was basically like being a little superintendent. Because <laughs> I did the budget, everything was mine. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the sell from the superintendent that hired me was, you know, you get to kind of be in control, Daisy. And my husband would say that's something I like. But <laughs> it really wasn't like that because I had such a great group of teacher leaders. And I was able to learn so much in those four years about you know, building teacher leadership, fostering student leadership, bringing the community into your school. So much was learned by me and everyone in that community during that four years time and by our students that I could never replace 
you know, how much I learned in that amount of time was way more than I had ever learned in all the years I was in education. Hmm. So whenever I got to the point where we had really, I felt like we had achieved, you know, our goal. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I had been doing all along was building that leadership capacity within my teachers when I first got there. And so I had already gotten two teachers had become certified to be principals at that time. And I had gotten one hired into the district and that was 50 miles away. She was hired into a school there. And I had one in waiting that I knew was going to take over for me and the school was going to be in great shape. And so I just felt like, you know, I need to do more. There's no reason that what we did here can't be scaled out at a larger model for all rural schools. And it's really not right for me to sit here and basically rest on my laurels and not share this with the world. And so after lots of talk with my husband and lots of, you know, praying on it, basically, I, I decided that was what I was going to do. And so I felt good about leaving my school that was my family and moving on because I knew that I had left it in a better place than it was and everyone there was capable and they were leaders themselves now. So that was that was really why that decision was made was not because I ever want to leave education because I don't ever want to do that, but just simply because I want to be able to make a larger impact on education. So that's that's the exciting reason why I am where I am today. Mm-hmm. And so I understand that that was like your reason for leaving. Um, Did you face any criticism from within the district or within the school for deciding to leave? Um, Absolutely none from within my school because we were such a tight knit group. Now, did they want me to leave? No, of course not. (laughs) And I would have been upset if they would have wanted me to leave. Goodness. (laughs) You know, (laughs) if they want to shove you out the door, part of them wanted me to leave because they knew I needed to grow and do more. You know, I think that they saw, and this is kind of something that I think a lot of educators maybe face, and especially educators with the type of personality like I might have, they really want a challenge. They want something that's going to constantly challenge them and something that's going to really push them. They want to be problem solvers. If you've been a turnaround principal before, that's, I mean, those four years basically consisted of 16 to 18 hour days, six days a week for me. I mean, there was no laugh with my family. I mean, that, that was, there was nothing because if you weren't at school doing stuff or in the community doing stuff, you were working on data, you were working on trying to find different ways, you were writing, I mean, I wrote over a million dollars worth of grants for our school by myself. There wasn't a group that was able to help me outside of, you know, my teacher leadership team, which was amazing, but all of that stuff gets done by the principal. There is no support team in a small rural school, so the amount that goes into that, it weighs heavy. I mean, it's a heavy load. And so I think that also mentally, it was something that probably had worn on me. So I think it was a really great time 
for me to be able to say, okay, I have young children too, and they probably like to see me. I've been on a 245 day contract for the last 10 years. You know, I had a 10 year old daughter and I hadn't spent one summer with her ever. Hmm. So that that's hard as a woman. You know, I know that that stereotype and I'm, I'm one of those people that a woman can do everything that a man can do. I agree with that, but it, I want to spend some time with my kids too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it was just the right time, the right place. And it, it's the right message for me. I have the right platform at this time and I have the right skill set to do a lot of really good things with a lot of really great people that'll help so many kids. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I want to do. So, I mean, you talked about like the mental wear of this and like, could you walk me through one of your regular 16 to 18 hour days? Oh, goodness. (laughs) And I don't want any, I don't want you to think in any way that I would ever take back any of the time I spent doing that because that was easily four of the best years of my life. You know, seeing the end product And I would do it over again in a heartbeat. If somebody came to me tomorrow and said, these kids are suffering and we think that you're the person, the only person that can get this done and it's going to change the lives of these kids, I can guarantee you I would probably sign up to do it tomorrow Mm. just because that's how I am. (laughs) But, I mean, it would be, it was a 45-minute commute every day. And so I would probably leave the house at 5 and get to school then you've got i had you know a pre-k because we wrote a grant to add pre-k i had a pre-k building which you know they went by a totally different set of rules so Mm -hmm. we would often have visitors for pre-k that i would have meetings with outside of that then i had a lower elementary building an upper elementary building a middle school building and then a high school building then I had my cafeteria building. Then I had my agri building. <laughs> then I had a family consumer science building. Now, these are all separate buildings. So I have to do walk arounds on all those areas. And mind you, these are with dirt roads in between them. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in heels and walking around all this area. Mm-hmm. And we don't have cameras. We don't have any type of security system. We don't have any police. We don't have a... There was one resource officer and, for the district, and he would come down like once a month to my campus. So I was the resource officer. We had a gym. We had, you know, so it would just consist of, and I was insistent on not doing my paperwork at school because I didn't believe that that was time well spent. So I was insistent on not being in my office during the school day, I was insistent on being out in the classrooms and out with students. So I would be doing walkthroughs constantly. And if there was discipline issues or if there was an issue with a teacher having problems or if I had to fill in because subs were very hard to come by and we were very short staffed because we were underfunded. So we didn't have any extra staff anywhere. So there was a lot of times I was doing, you know, I might have been teaching chemistry or Mm -hmm. I might have been, you know, filling in in the cafeteria. So there was there was a lot of days like that. And then school gets out. You have to make sure all the buses get run. The bus, the bus 
routes are often an hour and a half to two hours. We wrote a 21st century grant. So the 21st century grant has an after school program that runs till six o'clock. The six o'clock buses then run. So those could run an hour and a half. So then you're looking at 7.30. So <laughs> then you have basketball games, activities, those things. Then you drive home 45 minutes, and then you do all your paperwork at home. And then on top of that, I'm an avid proponent of professional learning networks and being online and connecting with other people across the country, which I believe if I hadn't had that professional learning network, that we would not have been able to turn our school around because a huge amount of the ideas, a huge amount of the confidence I gained came from that. I mean, our school was one of the first in Arkansas to go BYOD, and that was because of my connections with people through my professional learning network online and the ideas I was able to get there. And we went BYOD and that was one of the biggest pieces that was able to turn us into really integrating that technology fully and becoming really successful. So, you know, it could be, I probably would stay up tons, you know, all night doing different paperwork that was required just by the state and by the district. But, you know, I loved it. It was great. You know, I would never have ever changed it because it was such an awesome process seeing that growth and seeing the changes that were taking place. So it was, it's a wonderful, it's wonderful to be part of something like that, especially when you're seeing the progress. It's it's just amazing. And now, you know, as someone who's really trying to work with other schools and trying to get other things going in other places, I love to be part of, you know, the person that maybe turns that idea on for another principal, that that's something that's possible for them, that they could, you know, be that spark that leads that for their school or that, you know, if my school little school in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas was able to do that. Why can't you do that? So I think it's really, it's really exciting for me now in that role of more of a coach, or even if I'm giving a keynote speech somewhere, if I'm just able to say, you know, when they're saying, no, there's no way we can do that because our kids are too poor. We can't have BYOD. And then I can say to them, but we were almost 90% free and reduced lunch and we were BYOD and had no problems with it. Then the whole conversation changes and the whole perception in the group is like, whoa, maybe we can do that. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's really exciting to bring those experiences to places where it's going to really be valuable and bring dividends to other schools and impact more kids. That's so exciting. And what was one moment where you saw that growth that was so exciting to you or you saw an instance of, wow, this school actually is really turning around. This is paying off. Um, I think probably when... There were probably a lot of those moments but I think probably one one of them was probably when 
in my high school when the students started taking some ownership for their learning and ownership for what was going on within the school themselves. So we, um, I had gotten really excited about Genius Hour. I had seen some, I got, had gotten to speak at ISTE and I was really excited about, I had seen them talking about Genius Hour. There was a, and this was like way before, you know, there had been so much celebration of it. And I had seen a little something about it. And so I had told my teachers about it and I told them, you know, this can't be something that comes from me. It has to be something that you and the kids are excited about. So if you're interested in it, you know, talk to the kids about it. And if you guys want to pursue this school wide, or if you want to pursue it, then I need you guys with the kids to come up with a plan. And I was just so impressed because the kids came up with a plan for it. And one of the things that was so important to them was they were the ones that really wanted to put parameters on it where it was more of a reward system than it was just for everybody, (laughs) which was just so amazing to me was that, you know, they really wanted to show ownership and they wanted their school to be one where everybody shows up every day, everybody's accountable for their actions. It was just, it was so cool to see kids that really, you know, were beginning that when I got there, were so downtrodden. And so like, we're just St. Paul, we don't matter. And, you know, we're, we don't do very well on our tests and we're just in the middle of nowhere and we don't have any technology. And, you know, just we're really, negative about the Mm -hmm. environment to now where they're like, Hey, we are one of the best schools. And because we are, then we're going to expect everyone to have a certain level and meet a certain standard. And if you want to be part of this great new thing we're going to do, you're going to have to meet our standard. And the fact that the students did that on their own was so rewarding. And I thought that that showed so much of a culture shift. Hmm. And it, that was just something that I went home and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really exciting. And on the flip side, were there any moments where you didn't think that would happen? Oh, yeah, every day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like every day something would happen and I would just be banging my head against the wall or I would just be thinking this is never, you know, we would get... Like I, we were able to obtain a large grant and we were getting um, a ton of technology that none of like the rest of the district didn't have even close to that amount of technology. And the first thing was that the district had decided that, well, just because I wrote the grant and we got it, that didn't mean that we got to keep the technology. So the district was going to take the technology and disperse it amongst all the campuses. So that was my first, you know, like, are you kidding me? We did all this work to get this and now you're going to take it from us. But that obviously didn't end up happening. But, you know, stuff like that or stuff like whenever we first got the technology and we were doing our initial training and teaching, um, just some of the things that I would hear from teachers more than students of grumblings and but it was just because they didn't understand 
and they were they hadn't had all the training they needed yet so that was and it was more before they got it than after they got it and they received the training and i think once that they saw the reactions of the students then that totally changed Mm -hmm. so i just think that you know if you're leading a school turnaround and the most important thing for me was that I had such an awesome core team of teacher leaders that kept me picked up all the time and we supported each other through it all. And that was what really made the difference that we were able to, and not only did we have that core group of teachers, we were able to grow that group. You know, it started out like a group of four or five and then it would turn into six or seven. And you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. was really a strong, strong contingent of people that we were not going to allow this to fail. And so it was just, it, it was a struggle, but it was really exciting. Wow. And so, I mean, we at EdSearch are really interested in ed tech. And so can you give me a progression of what role technology played in this turnaround and then what you're trying to do with it now, like how you're trying to bring those kinds of initiatives or share those out to other schools and districts. Absolutely. So when we initially met and the first thing that I did after I called everybody on my staff, my first day there and they all freaked out to hear from the new principal. Uh, they were like, what? I work in the cafeteria. Why are you calling me? <laughs> I was just trying to get to know everyone. So I, um, we gathered people from the community, and we gathered students, and we gathered people that would eventually become that core group of leadership team. And we got together and came up with, you know, a vision for changing and turning around the school. And what ultimately became the two things we were going to focus on was that we wanted to, one, we wanted every student that was in our school to have a strong relationship with at least one adult that worked at that school. Mm -hmm. Now, just because it was a smaller school and it was rural, Everyone just kind of assumed that that was going on, but that was not the case at all. We have ton- we had tons of teachers that drove in from out of town, and when Friday came, you never saw them again until Monday morning at the last minute. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no connection whatsoever, and that was something that really bothered the community. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing was that we wanted to leverage technology to be the bridge that really brought the so to speak and it's cache to say all the thing but we wanted to close the digital divide and really Mm. bring that equity piece that we were missing from you know a school that was an hour away from us that was able to go you know to a large giant library or go to the university of arkansas and see all kinds of amazing things where we have kids that you know haven't even gone out to dinner ever in a nice restaurant. So we wanted to be able to leverage technology to show them some of the amazing things that they could do and see. And we really really wanted to bring that in. And so those were our two goals. And I'll admit when we set those as our vision, they, they were very excited and they were 
oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. But then they were all just really leery because they're like, there's no way we're going to get this stuff. You know, we can set these goals, but we're never going to get the technology because I mean, they really didn't have anything, Mm -hmm. but I just tell them, you know, if you guys will stay fired up about it and you'll set it, I'm going to find a way to get it. And I, at that point I had no clue how I was going to, but I was going to do it. (laughs) So we ended up being able to, we ended up being able to do it, and it was honestly just complete luck because we were a Title I school, of course, being that high, free, and reduced lunch. Mm-hmm. And in Arkansas, there was some leftover Title I funds, and you had to write a grant to apply for them, and you were supposed to get like $4,000 was the max or something like that. And so I wrote the grant, and... We were going to buy e-readers, which was great. You know, e-readers will be wonderful. Our boys weren't reading. And so that was going to be our, you know, our focus was trying to get more boys to read because it's cooler looking if you have an e-reader versus a regular book. (laughs) And that's what, that's what they told us. You know, we had, we had done some surveys and that's what they said. So I did that, did that. We spent the money. We got the e-readers. It was great. And then they contacted me and they said, Hey, um, we're going to award you some more money for that grant. I was like, oh, okay, really? Do I have to buy e-readers? And they're like, well, I don't know. I, I don't think you'll need to get that many e-readers. And I was Wait, like, so- what? They said, you're the only person in the state that applied, so you're going to get all the money. Oh, my God. And I just said, what? <laughs> I know. You should have seen my face. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up getting, like, way over $50,000, close to $60,000. So for a school that was our size, that's a huge amount. Mm -hmm. So we were able to get, you know, iPads for all the teachers, sets of iPads. We were able to get, you know, a netbook cart, which at the time was what everybody was getting. There there weren't Chromebooks at the time. Mm -hmm. And we were were able to really, you know, give our students a diverse amount of things to use. So starting that next, the second August when I was there, the students came back and their eyes were just like saucers because they were like, oh my gosh, it happened. She wasn't lying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So after that, it was just, that's when really everything really started to fall into place because the kids really started to take pride in school and they started to believe, hey, we are going to start getting stuff. Then I was able to cut some different positions and cut some places and we got a brand new Mac lab. We got, you know, we started trying to get everything that we could that was, you know, the newest, the things that the kids were really into, those type of things that would really be cutting edge stuff for them. Mm-hmm. So it was it was just great and we taught them we taught our teachers over the summer they all had their they all had iPads before they got them they were preloaded with different types of apps that would be great to use in their classrooms for you know either just formative assessments or just student engagement activities, things that they could use if it was just a one iPad classroom or that they could use if they had the iPad cart in their classes. They were trained on those. And then they were given their iPad to use all summer long. And I told them, you know, even if you just play games on it, I just want you to come back and feel really comfortable with it and be able to engage your students with it. And the teachers just felt empowered. 
and they came back and they were able to do that. And that's really when we just started taking off and getting progressively stronger and stronger. That's just where it really started happening. And then, you know, from there, it just snowballed. And what was the process of, you mentioned lobbying for more bandwidth. What was that process like? Um, Well, we had to, you know, being such a poor school and being so rural. And when I say rural, it was on a survey that I did um, of our household. We only had, because I was really considering, you know, is it, worth trying to really push to go one-to-one you know is that worth the push if would that be where our money would be well spent and I didn't think it would be because I didn't think we had enough homes that had the bandwidth at home either Mm -hmm. that only 10% of our homes had internet service at their homes mostly because it wasn't available there just because the terrain and the service is so bad I mean and we had people that were still had dial-up at their homes. That's all that was available because it's just, it, it really is. It's just mountainous terrain. And we were able to find that there was another town 30 miles towards Fayetteville, which is a large community 30 where the university of Arkansas is 30 miles towards Fayetteville. That is another school that was receiving, you know, like four times the amount of bandwidth we were, for a fifth of the price of what we were getting from the same carrier. So, I mean, we were getting price gouged and it was just ridiculous that we were receiving such terrible service. So I was able to get with our um, state and talk, you know, they had a program where they would pay for you to up your gigabytes and up the amount that you had. And I just, you know, showed them this is what's going on here and here, and this is what you're expecting us to work with. I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to up, they did agree to pay for it through the state, which was awesome. Now, later on, after we got some devices and had to have more, we did have to invest more in our infrastructure, but we were able to negotiate that price down just because of having done some of that research and having leveraged kind of my connection with the FCC and some of those things. So we were able to get that price down some, but it's, it's not fair, the things that they do to rural schools. It's just not right. Yeah, I've written about that a little bit. Um, there's some there are some newfangled tools that allow people to compare rates because I think this happens to a lot of, I think that yes. happens to yes. quite a and few districts. Tons of them. And now, I mean, I'm so glad that Sherman Wheeler allowed for an E-rate for you to actually, you know, build your own for that to be one of your options mm-hmm. and that that to build your own infrastructure and to provide, because I really believe that that's going to be some places only choice because I just don't feel like that these providers are going to, until a school really does it, I don't know if they're going to come around. Yeah. I I really don't. I think uh, the Coachella Valley district in Southern California is starting to build their own program or their own Wi-Fi delivery system to students and schools. It's exciting. It's an area. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting yeah. for innovation, but also it's a bummer that that happens, um, yeah. to say the least, anyway. Well, so yeah. so these are all, like, 
great facets of what you've done. Can you talk to me about your current ventures? Um, Jenna mentioned you are doing a consulting gig and that, and you talked about scaling it up, scaling these efforts up. Yes. So I am excited. I, I get to do all kinds of amazing things now. I have through just my connections from being an NASSP digital principal, I have, you know, I know a lot of people in a lot of different places and I've been blessed to be able to do a lot of speaking, which is really exciting. And I get to meet a lot of different people and learn about what they're doing in other places. And I get to do a lot of consulting and I love the aspect of coaching principals and coaching, you know, leaders, the leadership aspect of coaching, you know, how to lead, how to be a stronger leader, how to build leadership capacity within your teachers. I think that that is such an important piece of, and it often gets left behind just because everyone's so busy doing so many other things. And I, I love that piece. I really, I love being able to be involved with companies like being on the board at advisory board for Tez is super exciting for me because that's a group that really wants to take the perspective of an educator in and use that to really build out what they're doing, which is so exciting because that's not typical, (laughs) you know, as an, as an educator, it's so refreshing to have a group that, you know, Tez is huge in Europe, England, but, you know, here I was like, Tez, what is that? (laughs) And then when I'm talking to them and they're genuinely interested and they act on the things that I'm talking about, about what I believe that teachers really need and what would be of use to teachers and not in a way so they can profit off of it, but more in a way so that it can help teachers. That is so exciting to me. Because I think that that is what's going to eventually be what drives any profits that come out of education is whenever you're doing something that meets the needs of educators and students, that's what it's really all about. Mm. And so I'm so excited to be able to be involved like on the ground floor of a group like that, that really is in the right place and trying to do the right thing. So I love that aspect of what I get to do. And it's just, it's really fun to get to see other people growing and being able to contribute. And it also, it's really fun to be able to write and write stuff (laughs) that maybe as a principal, I wouldn't have gotten to say. (laughs) You know, I kind of get to be a little more opinionated now. (laughs) Yeah, like what's an example? (laughs) which which is fun. So I I just think that, you know, I get a, I wrote, um, Peter DeWitt was really nice to let me do a guest blog for him hmm. just uh, a month ago or a few weeks ago on his amazing Ed Week blog. I think Peter is amazing writer. I'm, I strive to be that good of a writer <laughs> and I'm trying to really work on it, but I was writing about the importance and of RTI and how important RTI is. But I was, my reflection was, you know, it's so important for our students that we provide response to intervention, but equally as important to me is why aren't we providing response to intervention for our teachers? 
And so it was really nice for me to be able to say that because that's something that's really been, you know, bothering me for a while. Mm -hmm. And I just, it was nice to be able to kind of get that out and say that, you know, just having teachers go to a professional development that's not tailored specifically to them and they don't, where they don't have a coach that is their administrator because I do truly believe that administrators have to be instructional leaders. You cannot have an administrator that's not an instructional leader anymore. That's not something that can happen. And so I just feel like that we have to be providing that ongoing RTI for our teachers continually, just like we do our students. And then I guarantee if we do that, I we won't, need near as much of our tier two and tier three RTI for our students. Hmm. And so it's just, it's exciting to me to be able to kind of, you know, voice opinions that I might not necessarily feel as comfortable voicing or the district I work for wouldn't feel as comfortable with me voicing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so that's really fun. Can you tell me a little bit about the project, some of the projects that you're working on now? Um, My, my biggest project and my passion project is really um, my redesigning rural education. I'm working on a what will be a rural education think tank and it's the idea behind it is to provide um, exactly what I was talking about in the beginning which is to try to scale out a model which we know is successful which was at the school that I was in to turn around rural schools and also make them relevant to today's students. But along the line of when I say scale it out, I also mean that not only do they have to be scaled out, but they have to be personalized to meet the needs of that unique rural community, which is the difference between some of these other models and these bigger cities and suburbia because every rural community has its own unique niche. So you have your, for example, my rural community was a, a lumber community. Like everyone worked in lumber and they would go and they would be in the logwood. So that was our niche. That was where everything ran. So you have different rural communities where different things are their center. So you have to really build that niche around that. So I would like to be able to really use the rural education think tank to scale out a model that would be able to work in each different rural community. But also, while there, I would like to use a data collection tool, which I've really been working hard with. There's a startup called Intervention Compass. And for the last nine months, I've been working with them to fine tune something that I think is going to be simple for teachers to use and simple for principals to use, but also provide tons and tons of great data that'll be quick in time data that you could use for RTI, you could use it for PLC data collection, you could use it for if you were doing your teacher data collection for what you provided for your teacher's own RTI, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. 
so you could have actual proof as to what was or was not working in those rural schools. Mm -hmm. So I would like to have some real data to back what is working. So that, that's really my long-term goal is to get that rolled out and have data to back up what we're doing to make sure that we have the right formula. And I'm, I'm, I have a partnership formed with a local university, and we're just working on working the kinks out and hopefully getting it rolled out within the next year. Very cool. So I'm Super really cool. excited about that. Yeah. It, it sounds like there are a lot of similarities between being a principal and running a company. It's a, it seems to me like you, well, yeah. Oh, I, I would definitely think so. My, my dad was a businessman for a long time, and he, he always, he told me that as well. He felt like that that was a good, he said that to me often, except he would always say, but I can just fire people. <laughs> <laughs> and I would always say, Dad, you don't ever want to just fire somebody. <laughs> you want to try to help them and grow them. And I was, and my dad would always just say, no, sometimes I just want to fire them. <laughs> and I would just laugh. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I, <laughs> so I just, I think that, you know, being a principal has really, been amazing experience for me and I will always consider myself an educator and a principal and more than anything an advocate for kids and an advocate for educators and an advocate for all students to have the same amazing education regardless of who they are or where they live you know and I think that that's something that we all have to work towards and continue to push for and it's going to take all of us doing everything we can to make that happen because it's a lot easier said than done mm -hmm. in my time consulting. I've been traveling around and I've been able to go into different schools. I've been, you know, I made my first trip to New York and mm -hmm. I'll tell you being like a little hayseed from Arkansas, <laughs> I, the, the school that I went in, I was like, Whoa, you know, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And, and, Schools that I've gone in in other play, other states, and I, they're not, you know, everything is not the way it needs to be. You know, kids deserve the best, and we're everywhere doesn't have the best. And I just feel like that my kids, I should want, I should, every school should be good enough that I would take my child in there and feel really good about leaving them there for their education. Mm -hmm. And that's. That's what we want to work towards. And my personal passion is rural education because that's where I was born and raised in. And I see so much advocacy for urban education. And I, I think it's well needed and it's very important. And, you know, the inner cities and those type of things, I see that all the time. And I think that that's a very, a very important piece. But I don't see it for rural education. And that's over 40% of our students in America are in rural schools. So to me, that, that's something that we have to address. And we're, we're sending less kids to college at a lower percentage than any other school, than, than the inner city schools mm -hmm. or suburban schools. Rural schools are 
so far behind in sending kids to post-secondary. And that's, that's not right. You know, our kids need to be able to have the same type of experiences. We're scoring lower on the SAT. We're doing, you know, we're just not, we're not doing our due diligence for those kids in rural America, and we've got to do better. What advice would you give to a new, a newly minted rural principal? Um, my advice would be don't stay isolated, which is really easy to do in rural America. Don't stay isolated. Don't be afraid to connect with people outside of your school to get ideas, but also make sure that you maintain the relationships that are so important within your own community and within your own school so that when it's time to make those changes and when it's time to do things that for that school or for that area are going to be revolutionary, that you have the right relationships in place and you have the type of respect from the staff that they're going to be behind you to do those things, that they're going to understand that you want what's best for kids. So that that's probably what I would say to them. I think it, no matter what, if you're always working 110% and always doing 110% what's best for kids, then you're going to be all right. But we have to remember, we have to do what's best for kids now not what's best for kids, what was best for kids when we went to school. Because those are two really different things. Yeah. (laughs) Do you see that sensibility, like, influencing a lot of um, tech decisions, especially? That seems like it would be an area where it would come into play to me. I do. I do. I think that it is very difficult for some people to change old habits and I think that a lot of people just take the devices and say they're changing old habits and say they're doing things but then they just end up using them like they're you know use a a MacBook to do you know $1,400 worksheets because that's the only thing they know how to use it (laughs) so I I just I hope that that's changing and I hope that I'm part of that change. And I feel like that I have been, I'm excited that I'm going to be speaking to, you know, some principals in Georgia this summer. I'm going to be speaking to principals in Kansas this summer, specifically rural principals. And I'm really excited because they're eager to hear different ideas and hear things. And they want to hear it from somebody that was actually in their shoes and was able to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I can bring to the table that just not very many people are talking about because there's not been very many people in rural America that are sharing their stories and that are really out there and willing to talk about it. And that's something that I hope will change. And that's another thing that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a rural education, rural redesign blog that I'm going to be launching this summer 
where I'm going to be working really hard to get other rural school teachers and rural principals to start sharing those success stories, to start sharing, you know, how technology is bridging that um, equity gap and that technology divide for them at their schools. So we'll have a place, you know, as rural educators where we can share those amazing things that we're doing. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that will be something that maybe we can come together as a community and get going. I can't wait to read it. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I really, I really, because there are, in rural America, there are so many really dedicated people that want nothing more than to do what's best for their community. But a lot of times, they just haven't won. It's really hard when you're the only administrator mm. in 50 miles to leave your building. How do you leave a building when you're the only one there? And <laughs> what if something happens? I mean, it's very difficult. <laughs> and you don't have any assistance. You don't have, you know, you don't have an officer. You don't have anybody. So you're going to leave for three days to get training. That's very hard. And that's why I really hope the rural education think tank, I'm able to get enough support and to get some funding to make that happen. Because the idea is that that will be something where we'll be able to come to them and we'll be providing some blended learning elements where we'll be able to do that, where they're not going to have to be out of their building to receive that same super high quality, but also personalized training. So I'm really excited. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you've learned something about the problems that face rural schools and what it takes to improve them from Daisy Dyer Dewar. A big thanks to her for taking the time to talk to me. And by the way, listeners, we're going to five different cities in just as many weeks, super soon. Ed Surge is hosting jobs fairs in Silicon Valley on April 13th, Los Angeles on April 21st, New York City on April 28th, Washington, D.C. on May 4th, and Chicago on May 12th to help job seekers and edtech companies of all shapes and sizes shift into a higher gear. Whether you're looking to apply your teaching experience, hunting for coding and biz dev talent, or you just want to see what's out there, our jobs fairs are a great place to connect. We will see you there. I'm Mary Jamada, and I will probably be on my phone at the jobs fairs. I'm Blake Montgomery, and I will be inscribing email addresses into a stone tablet. Until next time. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.